you could turn with me to Luke chapter 15, um, starting in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. If you can pray with me. Lord, thank you so much that today um, we're able to gather together and worship you, um, knowing that each and every one of us, Lord, is accepted, um, just like the father in this story accepts uh, his son, Lord. I pray that you'd teach us today from this story, um, that you'd show us uh, what you have for us, and that you'd call us all um, back to you. on my desk, thought it might be helpful. We all pray with me again, just uh, want to come Holy Spirit. As I was, uh, oh, amen, sorry, I, that was just like a quick little in and out prayer, I guess. <laughs> Still going on. Prayer's still going on. Uh, as we were singing, I just kind of uh, got this picture. You know, oftentimes I think in church we talk about, like, God wants to speak to you today. 
And I kind of got this sense of, I think God wants to speak to some of us through what seems like his silence. That for some of us in the room, uh, we feel like we've been operating in a while where God has seemed remarkably distant. Extra quiet. I want to read this verse from Exodus chapter 14. This is when the Israelites were crying out to Moses in verse 11 saying, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But I want you to listen to these words that Moses told the people. Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Reminded of the verse also that talks about being still and knowing that he is God. And so I was praying for us uh, just as we were worshiping that the Holy Spirit would uh, speak to us in the innermost parts of our of our souls. And so that's my prayer uh, that uh, past all the things that we bring into the room today, past the distractions, past the uh, even reservations and questions and frustrations that God would speak to the innermost places of our soul, perhaps places that we don't even know need speaking to or need a tender presence of God that sometimes can be found in the silence. So today we are um, continuing our series on a whole bodied faith, faith that's not just with your head, but faith with your body, faith that doesn't just pertain to what happens when you die, but it matters how we live, that God has sent his son Jesus so that we might have abundant life, a rich and satisfying life, and that is now, not just then. And last week, we talked about the words from the prophet Amos in chapter 5, and we talked about this idea of God as king and his kingdom, and how our hope for the renewal of the world is God as king and his kingdom, that we are to pursue the king, and if we follow the king, then we get his kingdom. And for others of us, our hope for renewal of the world is not the king, it is to want the kingdom, the renewal of the world, uh, peace, flourishing, joy, all of these things to come, but with no need for the king. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to pursue intimacy and relationship with the king, and that that brings forth, and that when we follow this king, he brings forth his kingdom. I didn't share this last week, but a theme verse for this series could be, I say could be, like I'm not the one mainly preaching this series, is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right. Other translations would say to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Last week, in some ways, we talked about this idea of justice and doing justice, doing what is right. And this week, we are going to be talking about loving mercy. Next week, we're going to talk about humility. And then the last week of our series, Carly's going to uh, preach and talk to us about worship. Uh, which would arguably be that with God phrase. Now, hopefully we're covering the with God phrase every single week. But to love mercy, and here's part of my premise. I don't think we love mercy as much as we think we do. I think we like to think we are merciful people and that we love mercy, but I don't know that that is actually true. 
you might define mercy as not getting what you deserve in a, like a positive way. You deserve something bad and then not getting that. There is this uh, concept I heard about in a comedy special. It's a German word, so if I mispronounce, I'm sorry. I tried to look it up last night to see how it was pronounced, and I think I remember. Schadenfreude? Did I pronounce that right that you remember? Okay, Martha's nodding her head, and she's... Huh? Sean Freud? Okay, great. It was one of those. It's... Okay, sounds, sounds right. Uh, is anyone else familiar with that term? Yeah? Uh, so this is basically... The, it comes from two German words, meaning harm and joy. It is the idea of finding joy or happiness in someone else's downfall. Now, we can see this in, like, silly ways, like uh, watching fail videos on YouTube, right? Uh, we can see this in silly ways, how sometimes it's, you know... It's sad, but it's kind of funny if someone spills their coffee sometimes. I mean, I laugh at myself usually when that, when that happens, because um, it happens rather often. But it also is, uh, th this idea is not just about funny things. I would argue that a lot of us find joy, happiness, in the downfall of other people, not just in funny sort of ways. This manifests itself in, like, comparison, resentment, bitterness, that we don't like this person and so we're happy when things don't seem to work out for them. And you might make a case that some of that could be like, you know, judgment or whatever is coming on them. But for a lot of us, it is not that. We don't love mercy as much as we think we do. And so we read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 today. Thank you, Tucker, for, uh, just wanted to thank you publicly for reading scripture so much for us. Uh, I'm reminded of the words from the prophet Isaiah, uh, I believe it talks about when the word goes out, it doesn't return void. And when we read God's word together, there's something really powerful that happens. Uh, not just in the me coming up and preaching and explaining or talking about God's word, but simply in its proclamation and its being heard. That God does a good word, a good work within us in there. Uh, but I'm going to be talking about Luke 15, but I'm actually preaching from the book of Jonah. Is everybody familiar with the story of Jonah to some extent? So Jonah, uh, to reference Veggie Tales, was a prophet who really never got it, which was sad but true. They also added doodly-doo at one point in that song, but I'm not going to get to that point, but here I am saying doodly-doo anyways. Uh, and throughout this message, I'm going to reference this book uh, by Tim Keller known as The Prodigal Prophet on Jonah. And, and I'll dive into what the parallels are between Luke 15 and this in a moment. But I want to summarize the story very quickly. So in the beginning, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Tim Keller points out that perhaps the most surprising element of this narrative was that it, who God chose to send it. That for the Jewish audience, no background was needed to explain who this Jonah person was. Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25, tells us Jonah ministered during the reign of Israel's king Jeroboam II. And if you remember, we talked about him some last week. In that text, we learn that unlike the prophets Amos, who we read from last week, and Hosea, who criticized the royal administration for its injustice and unfaithfulness, Jonah had supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. I want to pause there. Even in the scriptures, we have examples of people labeling their faith and taking it as a way to pursue nationalistic gain. It's perhaps a related, but I want to make that point. The original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist. 
And they would have been amazed that God would send a man like that to preach to the very people he most feared and hated. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh. And if you remember the story, he doesn't go to Nineveh on the, in the beginning. He goes, tries to go to a place called Tarshish, which would have been like the end of the world. It's basically saying he went in the total different direction. He was supposed to go here. He didn't just kind of miss it. He went in a totally different direction. And while he was on his way, he fell asleep on a boat and a storm hit. And the sailors woke him up. And long story short, they throw him over after crying out to God. And the storm calms, and Jonah, surprisingly, gets swallowed by a fish. And then three days and three nights later, after praying in the belly of the fish, Jonah spit up on Nineveh. And then he goes and he preaches an incredibly short message. From my recollection, I think it's like five words in Hebrew. He says, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his message. Perhaps there was more. But I don't know, I just was thinking about how... How would it go if I came up here and I preached five words? I mean, like, please only preach five words today. That would be great, Trey. I'm going to preach a couple more than five words. There's however many more that was. I'm not going to count. And so Jonah preaches this message, and it seems like everybody turns. Even the king of Nineveh started to turn. It says in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Uh, commentators on this passage might uh, point out that it doesn't, we don't know necessarily whether or not the people converted to faith in Yahweh here. Uh, the sailors seem to, with their worship and vowing to serve Yahweh, but they at least turned from their wicked ways in this story. And then we see, if you remember, Jonah goes outside the city and looks out, watching and hoping for it to be destroyed. And God sends a leafy plant to grow there, and it soon spreads over his head, shading him from the sun. But then God also sent a worm, and the worm destroyed the plant. And, of course, Jonah is very upset. The sun bared down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. In verse 8, death is certain, of chapter 4, death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. I love his, of all the things with Jonah, I love at least his confidence to be like, is it right? Yeah, it's right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I do that. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing more to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And the story ends with us not knowing necessarily what happened to Jonah. What did he do? What was his response? But I think it posits another question. How are we like Jonah? And how then will we respond? Keller points out in his book that it seems like the major problem here was that Jonah wanted a God of his own making. He couldn't reconcile the mercy of God with his justice. That he wanted God's justice to, to rain down. And I'm going to... Uh, shoot straight with you today because this story uh, feels wild, right? A great fish coming and swallowing a man. I remember when I was younger and I had people or even Sunday school teachers, maybe, maybe not Sunday school, somebody say like it was a whale. And I was like, no, it can't be a whale. It says a great fish. There are a number of scholars that make a very strong and persuasive case that this story would have been more satire. It's like very poetic if you read it. Um, and all the characters are very much like caricatures of a particular thing. So the prophet uh, was not 
simply like what a typical prophet would be. He does all the things that a prophet is not supposed to do. And then the Ninevites, even the way that it describes them is all turning, and even the king, Tarshish being kind of like end of the world. So there's uh, a case to be made that this is more like satire, though Jonah was a real person and the Assyrians were a real person. To illustrate a deeper point, uh, because of how I grew up, I tend to think this was probably also physically happened. I Because in my perspective, if God raised Jesus from the dead then I, and made the whole world, I have no problem believing he could also make a fish do all this stuff. And I say all that to say that I don't want which perspective you fall into to hold you up from the deeper truth of this story. I don't want you to write out the truth of this story because you're concerned about a fish. That's entirely, I would say, missing the point, and it's a rather fishy argument, if I might say. That was more laughs in a pun than I've gotten in a long time. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I was also going to make a joke about opening up a can of worms, referencing the later part in Jonah, but alas, here I am just making everybody's eyes roll. So, Here's what I want to get into today. Uh, I want to kind of take us through a couple movements of the story and how there are movements in our lives as well. The first is God's call. God calls Jonah to go and preach this message to the city of Nineveh. The call is to follow him, to trust him. I I was uh, at a pastor's cohort this past week, and one of the pastors there was talking about the difficult things that he's uh, he and his family have walked through in the process of Uh, leading a church in, I was in Vancouver, in Vancouver where they're at. And I mean, if you heard the stories, he was saying they were crazy. Um, And the stuff that he'd been walking through presently, he was saying God has a way of giving us what we most desperately want by taking us through things that we would never choose for ourselves. And kind of the point that he was making is sometimes we don't even actually know totally what we want (laughs) and what our souls most desperately need. And so the call for Jonah here and for us is to follow him, to trust him, to go where he goes, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. It's one thing to go where God's calling you to go if it's like a a rainbow, and at the end of the rainbow, you know that there's a pot of treasure, and you know that's for sure. But it's another thing to go where God is calling you to go and walk in obedience to him when you don't know what the next steps look like. And that's the invitation from God. It's probably not that hard to walk with God and go into Disney World. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. The part of the invitation from Jesus is is to follow him and trust him above our own wisdom. And I'll have to tell you, uh, I fail at that. Uh, We all fail at that. And so we move into the kind of second movement, which is our failure. Tim Keller and others uh, make the case that there, is, there are strong parallels between Luke chapter 15 and the story of the two sons and the father with the prodigal prophet here in Jonah. You might make a case that the first movement in Jonah where Jonah runs away and flees to, tries to flee to Tarshish is like the younger son in Luke 15. Running away from God, running away from the father, trying to go as far away as possible. To quote from Tim Keller that it is believed that Tarshish lay on the outermost western rim of the world known to the Israelites of the time. In other words, how far could you possibly go? Let's go there, anywhere but Nineveh. And like the younger son in the story, we see Jonah also had to go down to the depths, realizing that he had nothing left. In verse 
Verse nine of chapter two, he says, I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise and I will fulfill all my vows for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. And that was right before the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach. And he seems to get it here. The second movement though, perhaps is more reminiscent of the older son, where he technically goes and he preaches the message that he's supposed to do, but he is filled with bitterness, with resentment, with a sort of hyper-religiosity, thinking that he alone and his people alone deserved God's good favor. It was also just racist against the Ninevite people and the Assyrian people. Also, it was incredibly hyper Nationalist. We see that uh, also in the story uh, in 2 Kings, where even though other prophets were proclaiming that this king was perpetuating system of injustice, Jonah would use prophetic language and take it and use it instead for the benefit of their own nationalistic gain. And I'm going to be honest, towards Jonah, I can feel like the older brother. What I mean by that is it's easy for me to look at Jonah and be like, oh, how dare he? I'm way better than that. I totally become the older brother towards the older brother. Maybe that's a byproduct of being the oldest of six kids because there's lots of older ones. But I want us to look at this to hopefully give you some sympathy or maybe some empathy or understanding for Jonah. The Assyrian Empire was awful. That's where Nineveh was located. Tim Keller pointed out, and I'm quoting here, that it was shocking that the God of Israel would want to warn Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, of impending doom. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating of, hear this, whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned to the ground. What I'm about to read here is somewhat descriptive. It is descriptive. But I hope this gives you a picture of what Jonah would have been picturing probably walking into. The emperor, Shalmaneser III, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. These were their like public things that they would hand out and showcase. This is what we do to people. I wouldn't really want to go to Nineveh. Yeah, throw me into the sea instead. It gets worse, believe it or not. Assyrian history is, and Keller's quoting here, as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. He goes on to say, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. In other words, as Keller put it, and to paraphrase him, Jonah's prospects of success, in earthly terms, very, 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 very low. Prospect of death, very, 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 very high. Tarshish doesn't seem like that bad of a place. <laughs> so to his credit, and I don't, I don't know, I, go to, I don't want to go to Nineveh, you know. But what we see here is that this in the story, Jonah hates mercy and doesn't understand it. 
we see the prophet repeatedly described as not getting it when even the sailors in Jonah chapter 1 do get it. They turn to God, and we see that the sailors in verse one, chapter 1, verse 16, the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. And we see the Ninevites turning from their sin as well, that the one who was supposed to get it didn't get it, and the ones who weren't supposed to get it seemed to get it. Tim Keller concluded uh, that Jonah concluded that because he could not see any good reasons for God's command, there couldn't be any. Jonah doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. Both the sin of the younger brother and the older brother come down to not trusting God, believing that somehow we know better, that it is better for me to run off and do my own thing with my inheritance than to walk with him. And God's showing mercy on this person? No, 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 that's not good. Sin, you might say, can stem from one lie. God is not to be totally trusted. Think of the question that the serpent asked in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Did he really say? And what was the tree that, the, that Adam and Eve ate from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does God want us to know what is good? Yeah, I do. And who's good? It's him. He's the definer of what is good. But sin comes down to, I get to define what is good and bad. And so my question for us and how we are like Jonah, do you trust that what God has for you and for the world is good and beautiful? Do you trust him or do you trust yourself? Some of us struggle to believe things about God or what he might call people to do, not because it's what's in scripture, but because we can't imagine how that thing that God wants could be good. And part of trusting in God is learning to trust him even though you do not understand how that thing could be good. Because you know he is, you will trust him because he is good and he knows what's best. So uh, this seems rather bleak, the story of Jonah, uh, because I hear it and I'm like, okay, actually the more I think about it, uh, both of these are kind of me. I probably, maybe it's being an older brother, but also my, just my tendency, I tend to be more of the older brother in, in the figure. Uh, and then I also can be such an older brother that I criticize other older brothers for being older brothers, if you know what I mean. Which just indicates how deep the pattern of sin is in my heart and how desperately I need God. But luckily the story doesn't end here. We see in so many ways Jesus being the true and better Jonah, Christ accomplishing even though we have failed. Unlike Jonah who ran away from God's call, Jesus went willingly and in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though he was praying for the Father to take his cup away, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Where Jonah ran away from those who would kill him, Jesus went willingly, did not run away, knew what he was getting into, knew he was going to be tortured, and put up on a cross the worst form of Roman punishment. He knew it, and he walked into it. Jonah was prideful. Jesus, on the other hand, was humble. As Philippians chapter 2 says, that you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Jesus had every reason not to be humble, but yet he still humbled himself. If I'm remembering correctly, I'm not preaching on Philippians 2 today, but from my recollection, uh, where it talks about not counting equality with God as something to be clung to or cling to, uh, that's a, a reference to not something to be taken advantage of or to use for one's own gain. Jesus humbled himself. There's more parallels. Jonah fell asleep on a boat, and the people, the sailors, woke him up scared, right, because they were afraid of what was going on in the storm. There's other stories in the Gospels where Jesus, as well, is asleep on a boat. And what happens? The sailors, the disciples, go and wake him up. And what happens when Jesus calms the sea? Like in Jonah, where the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him, what do the disciples say? Who is this man? that even the wind and the seas obey him. We also see right after this where Jonah is thrown into the depths, that in Matthew 12, it says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for the three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We see this language represented in the Apostles' Creed as well, which I'm not gonna read for you in this, in this moment. We see Jesus refer to this thing called the sign of Jonah and calls himself greater than Jonah in Matthew 12. As Jonah was sacrificed to save sailors, Jesus laid down his life to save us. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. We see also this message that Jonah proclaimed in chapter 4, verse 4, 40 days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. Other translations would say uh, overturned or overthrown. This word, uh, that's used there, according to the Bible Project, can mean like destruction, can be negative, but also can be transformed or changed. And ironically, what was supposed to be destroyed and instead still ended up being overturned, it was transformed. And God, likewise, for us, can take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it and use it for good. And then we see at the end of the story where Jonah is sitting outside the city angry, there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is sitting outside the city of Jerusalem, weeping over the city. And so perhaps some of you need to hear even now that it is the kindness of the Lord uh, that leads us to turn. So what do we do? Here's the invitation. Um, I'm going to use two churchy words, and, uh, and then I'll unpack them a little bit. Confession and Repentance. I'm gonna be honest, like when I was a kid, I was a kid that anytime uh, there was an altar call or a call to repent, I was like, that has to be referring to me, always. Yeah, I know I prayed the prayer to get saved like every night the past like two years, but like that one has to be for me. <laughs> this surely is it. Repentance is a call for all of us, not those, just those who may not follow Jesus yet. All of us who follow Jesus need to be in an ongoing journey of repentance confession, conversion. Repentance is like a changing of one's mind that results in action. Like Jonah going to Tarshish, it's like a turning from going to Tarshish and going in a different direction. That we're called to repent and turn to quote from Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And repentance is a churchy word that we don't often use uh, in other places, but I 
I want to show you in some ways how I I think it actually can be really good and healthy. Uh, There's a quote from a a book named uh, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas that I have not read, but I heard this quote mentioned. It said, couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. In other words, how many of you have ever gotten tired of hearing somebody just say, I'm sorry, and then never change? How many of you have said, I'm sorry, and then never changed? The invitation from God is to turn. Romans 2, verse 4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And I think, honestly, a lot of our problem with the language of repentance and thinking so negatively about it is because we don't trust that God has what is good for us. We think negatively about repentance because, oh, man, that's awful. I don't want to have to repent and turn from this because this other thing is better. But what if actually what he's having us repent towards is actually good, is actually beautiful, is actually, maybe not easy, but what is ultimately best for you? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 15 says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Last week, some of the things that we talked about are how Uh, the things that we have been promised uh, with the worldview that most of us have grown into without even thinking about it. The things that we've been promised about being more connected than ever have left us feeling more lonely and isolated than ever. The things that promised to bring us more peace, like a more globalized nation, have actually led to more people taking advantage of one another and more violence. Uh, The promise for uh, globalized world too, even with uh, issues of like market uh, with the market and with manufacturing of goods and other stuff has led to more people being enslaved today than ever. And that the majority of the like forced labor cases are in wealthy nations, not poor ones. The things that we have been told that would fulfill us, that would lead to peace, lead to renewal, have actually been failing and leading to something other than that. In some ways, the idols that we have upheld are crashing in front of us. And I don't even know that I really have to say that as much as you feel it. I mean, why else would we have to like be mindful of how much we watch the news or how much we're on social media? What are those things doing for you? And, and I'm, I enjoy the news, I enjoy social media. I'm not saying those things are inherently bad, but my, my point is the things that we have been promised aren't working out the way that, aren't giving us the thing that they, they promised. And so the invitation today is we're going we're gonna to have a moment of silence. I'm going to lead us into uh, offer a couple um, things that I think some of us may need uh, repentance from. One, no one is above needing repentance outside of Jesus. You need to, I need to regularly repent and turn to God. Uh, in a moment, kind of the culmination of our worship service today is going to be taking communion together, the Lord's Supper. Um, and what we're going to have available for you is um, I'm going to be in the back as well as Martha. If you need someone to talk to, to pray, or to know it's super uncomfortable, um, I literally did it this past week at a pastor's cohort, confessing sins to someone. Um, if you need somebody to confess to, we'll be back there. 
to go from James chapter five, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I have an inclination that a lot of us might not hear from God because we have ongoing patterns of sin in our life. And there is a way in which when we confess our sins to God, God has a way of speaking to us because we are turning our face to him and humbling ourselves before him. When I repent, do I still have more sins that I need repentance of that I don't know yet? Absolutely I do. I was at the, the end of this message at this pastor's cohort. They were, you know, finishing up and saying, you know, I sense the Holy Spirit, you know, offering these three groups. And one was about resentment that you struggle with. And one was about needing forgiveness for something. And my initial thought was like, I don't know that I have any super ongoing patterns of sin in my life right now. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Here they are. And so I, I, uh, they said, if you need to confess, you know, find someone uh, in this group to confess to and then pray over, have that person pray over you. And so I did. And of course I start weeping because um, the Lord just starts doing amazing things that are for, you know, my intimacy with him that I'm not necessarily going to share with you today. But my, my point is that if the Lord starts to bring stuff up to your mind, don't fight it, turn. It is uncomfortable, but when he calls us into repentance, it's actually good for us. So what I'm going to do um, is I am going to lead us in a moment of silence, provide some room for the Holy Spirit to speak, and then I'm going to offer some things that I perhaps sense that the Holy Spirit might be stirring within us in need of repentance. Uh, Martha and I will be back there uh, once I finish leading this moment, and there's communion back there. Um, and we do that uh, in a posture of repentance. If you are not ready to repent, I encourage you, don't take communion today. Um, no shame on you for that at all. Um, there are times certainly where I've not needed to. But it'll just be back there for you to take um, at your own inclination as we, as we sing together. So will you all uh, join me in uh, praying this? I'm going to have us have some silence. Come Holy Spirit. Would you identify the idols in our hearts? Would you show us things that we've been pursuing and perhaps even labeling as being of you? Will you reveal to us places that we've been finding our worth? Would you speak to our innermost soul? sense a reminder that uh, when we repent, it's uh, when we turn to God the first time we are saved. <laughs> uh, but when we repent, at least for me in my journey and experience, it's not something that I have to do just one time. I tend to have to repent of the same sin a lot of times for healing. Since that some of us 
trust to believe that what God has for the world is actually good. That perhaps we know what the scriptures teach, but we can't fathom how that could actually be good. I invite you to repent. And it's the Lord who brings change, not you, not willing yourself to do it. You may even still think I know what's better, but just tell him and say, help me turn. Some of us presently uh, have sin in our lives. Things that we know are not God's best. Almost like we're the younger son running away, but maybe you're not totally running away. Maybe you're more walking and like checking behind your back every now and again. And he sees. Some of us might have something in our past that we've never confessed to another person that needs to come to light. Some of us in this room are harboring bitterness, resentment, anger. Perhaps it plagues you. And you're in therapy, and I encourage you to keep going to therapy. But perhaps you've confessed the bitterness before, but maybe you need to do it again. Some of us have made an idol out of our own theology. Some of us have said for a really long time that we're following God, but if we're honest, our lives have been more motivated by a pursuit of pleasure or money or power or success. Some in this room are even not even sure that repentance actually leads to what is good and afraid of that. But I just want to encourage you as we move into this time of giving you space to talk with the Lord and with someone else if you need to receive prayer. The Lord does have what is good for you in mind. He made you, and he loves you, and he's for you. And, and I get this almost this, uh, this picture, perhaps, of a, a little kid uh, curled up in a ball um, and afraid, scared, sad, and that for some of us, other parts of us in our lives have been trying to fix the problem that that little kid has, to make things right in our own strength and our own power. And not all of that's bad. But perhaps today you need to bring that to the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do in this moment. We all pray with me, um, and then as you feel led, uh, Martha and I will be in the back uh, if you need prayer, and then take communion uh, at your own discretion, and as you feel so led to do it. God, thank you for guiding us, for leading us, for moving in our hearts and in our midst.
Thank you for repentance and confession. I pray you make me look more like you. God, I pray you remove bitterness in my heart. God, I pray that you remove idols that I don't know I have, even if it's painful. God, and I pray for those in this room that are um, really struggling to believe that you could even possibly be good. But I pray that they'll even just be honest and bring that to you and ask you to change it. Because Lord, it's you who does the changing. We can't muster it up ourselves. And so God, I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do what only you can do. As we partake in communion in a moment, would you reveal the gravity it is of your mercy and grace and kindness? And show us how beautiful it is that you invite us to partake with you in your suffering and in your resurrection life and that you truly have come to bring us a rich and satisfying or abundant life. And Lord, the things that have promised us life but really are the thief masked in seemingly godly or good clothes. Help us remember that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but you have come that we might have life. Help us to walk in obedience and faithfulness even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us. Help us to be a church marked as people who radically trust you no matter what comes. For those of us walking through grief, Lord, I pray that you, you are with us here. And Lord, that you do a good work in showing us that you're with us. And Lord, that our grief and sorrow doesn't lead us to bitterness. I pray that you do a miraculous work in our hearts that only you can do. In the name of the Father and the Son and Spirit that I pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. We pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.